Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, joining me in today's episode are Rory and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about the latest news on Peloton and where the company goes next. Why Elon Musk might soon be proven right over his Twitter claims. And we give you an exclusive peek at one of our subscriber-only Stock of the Month pitches. Make sure to check it out. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So guys, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast. We're going to actually kick off today by returning to a story we talked about last week. So last week, we spoke about kind of the reasons why Amazon was buying up so many healthcare startups at the minute and speculated what it was exactly planning to do with them. But as typically happens on this podcast, uh, the news is ahead of us. And, and just after we recorded, Amazon announced that it was actually shutting down its Amazon Care division, which is its telehealth service or its, its burgeoning telehealth health service uh, I suppose burgeoning no longer. But Rory, after all we spoke about in last week's episode, why has Amazon suddenly shut down its own healthcare effort? Or effort? Did we speak too soon in kind of speculating what it's planning on doing with healthcare? We're we're cursed. We have a curse yeah. upon us. That's how we. That's um. Yeah. Once we speak about something, they implode. No. Um. It's. Uh, I mean. It's. I think the headlines kind of misleading. They're shutting down what they call Amazon Care. Um. I don't believe that that's out of you know, in, in some sense of them saying that they've given up on healthcare in any way, they have, they've clearly kind of decided they have much more interest in buying this than building it. Yeah. That's what we talked about last week when we talked about One Medical, we talked about the potential of this Signify uh, acquisition that they were talking about. You know, they've been kind of poking away at Amazon Care for a good few years. We know that, you know, as we said last week, they'd tried that venture with Berkshire and they and JP Morgan that they they couldn't get their heads around either. Amazon Care, you know, it it really hadn't gotten much uptake. It was kind of only been released to their own employees. Um, from what I'd read, employees had kind of you know used it a couple of times, but hadn't really kind of gotten gotten into it. Hmm. Their their acquisition of one medical now has them you know 180, 200 medical offices, you know something like uh, eight hundred thousand members. This is a kind of business that they can build upon and scale rather than hmm. trying to kind of go at it themselves. And and you know even though they have have an incredible base with their employees. Uh, they, they just, they needed some, some, something else to kind of like ground a kind of base for this whole thing to lift upon. And if they can kind of just move over, uh, employees into this newly acquired version of Amazon care, essentially it just happens to be called one medical, then, then that'll get the ball rolling a lot quicker, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there that they've got a good base of people to start with. What what was that stat that came out recently? One in every, is it like 160 people or even one in every 100? Or no, maybe it's Walmart is one in every 100 people in America work for Walmart and Amazon is like one in every 160 people. So, uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't Amazon Amazon say they were running out of people to yeah. hire? Because <laughs> cause like their, their retention rates are so poor and obviously people hate working for them. So they quit oh. and they're not going to go back. 
don't don't scary. think too hard about it, Mike. It gets a bit yeah. scary. <laughs> well, look, speaking of Amazon, let's move on to, I suppose, one of the main stories we want to chat about today, which does, of course, involve Amazon. This time we're talking about them in light of Peloton. Rory, couldn't let another episode of Stock Club go, go around without grilling you about Peloton. So Peloton was in the headlines uh, last week. Um, first of all, investors seemed pretty buoyed by the news that Peloton had struck a deal to start selling some of its equipment, namely its bikes, I think, on Amazon. This is significant because it's the first major breakaway from a direct consumer model for Peloton. However, this was inevitably followed by a bit of a sell-off after it released its fiscal fourth quarter earnings, which revealed a sharp decline in revenue and mounting losses. Let's let's reverse this, Rory. Let's touch on the, the last quarter, first of all. How bad was this for Peloton? And are there any silver linings from that report, um, especially with the new leadership change that we can kind of take away? It was bad. Yeah, it wasn't great. It was, I mean, as you know, I think uh, the previous quarter's results, people were a bit kind of shocked with how rapidly this company was, you know, trying to beat down inventory and, and cut costs. And this quarter was a kind of, oh, did you not like it last quarter? Well, we're actually have to do it harder and faster than we thought we were going to. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, like even on the top line figures, revenue missed by a few million. That wasn't too bad, but I mean, it still showed that they were, they were selling 28% less, um, than they were a year, uh, the year previously. Um, they missed big on earnings per share, a much wider loss than what we were expecting. Um, you know, this is down to a, a, a lot of factors. About a third of their operating loss came down to restructuring charges. That includes reducing the current inventory overhang, which is really killing them. Um, and as well as that, they've got these future inventory commitments that they're trying to get out of. They've also, you know, included, included in it also was recent moves to start outsourcing all their hardware and shutting down all their production uh, facilities in Thailand. So, you know, and then there was a lot of supply issues that had to deal with according to the report. Now, if you want to put a positive spin on that, please do. It does, it does <laughs> at least, I mean, they're, they're making progress at least on their stated goals. They've outlined, uh, uh, some, some, a strategy, um, and they're going for it, hell for leather. Um, you know, as McCarthy pointed out in the shareholder letter, before this quarter, the company was had was burning through about six hundred and fifty million per quarter. Uh, they've got that down now to four hundred and twelve million uh, for this quarter. You know, still not great, but at least it's going in the right direction. And um, they've also announced that they're they're outsourcing their member support and last mile delivery, and um, that's going to reduce their headcount even further by about seven hundred and sixty. But you know, they're still racing to sort out these inventory issues. Um, to the point now where, you know, they're making a loss on their hardware, um, which is a wow. huge departure from where this company was just a couple of years ago when they had really great hardware margins and better hardware margins than Apple had at one point. <laughs> Positive spins, you know, the, according to McCarthy, they are seeing some green shoots in, in some of the new programs they've launched. One of them is a kind of fitness as a service rental program that's aimed at kind of more um, value oriented cons- uh, consumers. That's performed better than expected. They're planning to roll out a marketing support for that nationwide. They've brought in a service where they are buying back or, or, or selling on used bikes that have been authorized by them, um, as you know, in perfect working order. Um, and you know, they're, they're still kind of pushing the digital app subscriptions, which, you know, they're not seeing huge growth in, but it's, it's, it's very much leading towards this new strategy of just get as many people into the top of this funnel yeah. and try and bring them down into a subscription. 
Yeah, well, look, let's let's go back, I suppose, and tie this into the Amazon part of the the, the puzzle. Then now, you mentioned that they're making a loss on their products now. This deal with Amazon, it's Peloton's first big breakaway from this direct to consumer sales strategy. And you know, how big of an opportunity is this for the company? Will this, you know, is, is this a volume game to try sell more of these and try to start kind of ma- return to making money on these products? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of ways of looking at it. So management noted in the release, there's about half a million searches for Peloton on Amazon every month. Yeah. And um, so clearly there are consumers out there looking for their products. And if they go onto Amazon, they're not getting that. Um, you know, Amazon has for a long time be a pl- been the place where shoppers start their search for products um, that they want. Now, you know, in terms of businesses trying to control their relationships with, with their customers, that's not great. You know, selling mm. on Amazon is going to erode that relationship. And of course, Amazon are now taking a cut, um, which means more margin pressure. Uh, you know, previously the company had basically taken, you know, a flaming sword to, to their prices in an order to try and shift as much inventory as possible. I think they've come back with a kind of more nuanced approach. They've restricted this deal to their lower end hardware and apparel. Which, you know, shows how eager they are to shift that particular, that particular, particular, um, segment of inventory. But look, this is a, you know, $3.4 billion business with over a billion dollars in inventory on their books. Um, yeah, that's not sustainable. So there's, there's no hiding that this is a desperate move. Um, you know, at the end of the, the shareholder letter, the CEO, Barry McCarthy said, you know, he basically compared Peloton to a massive ship. Um, and essentially they're, they've got their all hands on deck now trying to turn that ship as fast as possible. And, you know, that sometimes means taking drastic action. You know, it's clear that the company is now, you know, we know, we know McCarthy's, um, you know, experience in both places like Netflix and, and Spotify has all been about building subscription businesses. And this is a kind of total restructuring of the whole business funnel. Everything is up for grabs as long as it leads them into those connected fitness subscriptions. It sounds to me, Rory, like you, you might have a bit of hesitation about this kind of Amazon deal. I, I'm reminded, well, first of all, Peloton, you know, when we first started talking about it two, two and a half years ago, it was a premium brand. You know, it was really, really, it was up there with kind of like Apple as one of those really premium brands that you pay more money for. You could get a cheaper solution, but you, you pay for a Peloton. I'm reminded of, of, I suppose, the troubles that Under Armour went through and they're kind of moving away from direct, or even if they ever were direct to consumer and the kind of, the, the brand erosion they saw through discounting and kind of their 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 products being seen in um in kind of <laughs> crappy <laughs> retail malls and stuff like that is is that a huge risk for you know when we consider i suppose what part of our initial thesis was for peloton and that premiumization is this kind of new strategy obviously a short-term necessity, but could it be a, a big long-term problem? It's possible. I don't know if it's a particular good comparison with Under Armour. You know, this is just one deal that they've made with one retailer, I mean, admittedly the biggest retailer in the world, in order to try and shift some overhang of inventory. What happened with Under Armour is that they basically lost control of their inventory to third parties okay. across the entire retail landscape. And it was those third parties that were discounting their products in order to shift it so they could bring in more products. Um, again, where McCarthy sees the value in this business in the content and the descriptions. And I think he's, that's where he wants to focus on the premium part of the business. The, the hardware is simply a way of getting people into that subscription. And uh, maintaining that premium element of the business, it's, it could be difficult. And yes, you could potentially have an impact on the brand's equity in terms of the hardware. But, you know, they still, you know, if you look at the figures, 
they're not as great as they were during the pandemic. We didn't think they would be, but like, the engagement on the devices is still quite strong. People still seem to like the product. They still seem to like the content. And, you know, the, the promise of this business is, is being able to leverage huge subscribers to create the best content. The, I mean, if, as long as it's getting into people's homes, that's where McCarthy sees this business going forward. So this is, this is where the turnaround starts. Yeah, so I suppose finishing up here, like looking at Peloton as a whole, then we had them to shortlist uh, just over two years ago, obviously been on a downward slide since then. How's your thesis changed in the company? Do you still see this kind of move towards the content side? Do you see this as the real, I suppose, lifeline for, for this company as an investment? Well, I disagree with you when you say it's been a downslide since then. Um, the stock was up. Well, you uh, you got to go up to come down. Uh, <laughs> the stock was up 5x at one point. So uh, It's like it's one of those up, roller coasters. You know, <laughs> yeah. Roller coaster up, up, up. rather than a slide, I would say. Uh, <laughs> fair. Okay, fair. Yeah, look, when we added them, remember we added them kind of even before this pandemic thing had kicked off. I think you know, we'd heard of a pandemic, but I don't think anyone at that point expected what was coming. Um, and at the time, the company, you know, I think a lot of people had written them off. It'd gotten that kind of headline of, oh, this company that sells $2,000 bikes. That was pretty much all everyone talked about the business. The What I thought was interesting about that company was how much people were discounting the subscription business that was behind it particularly when you were to take you know the cost of that subscription and look at it across you know what else was what else was on offer out there um what's clearly happened is you know during the pandemic this company just grew way too big for its socks you know it just they they went and and you can understand why they were it, it was a time when they were just new to the public markets, they had, there was such demand for their products that they were, they had six months, nine month backlogs on these bikes that, you know, months ago people had laughed saying, there's no way you're ever going to sell a, a bike, uh, for two grand. And, and, you know, they couldn't sell them fast enough or they couldn't, they couldn't make them fast enough. The, the pullback in demand has been, I think, something that no one was expecting, uh, would come as harshly as it did. And, and in fairness to them, they're not the only company that, that this has happened to, you know, we talked about Amazon earlier, they have come out and said they made huge, they totally overestimated um, demand growth post pandemic. The thesis has certainly changed in terms of this is, you know, this is not a company anymore that has beautiful hardware margins. That's kind of looking like it's going to be kind of the apple of, of fitness, but there's still a good business there and they still have uh, the potential to grow a really, really strong subscriber base. Whether that means that they're going to exit the hardware business entirely, I think that could be an option that could be open for them. And uh, they could potentially just become basically like a Netflix of fitness more than an Apple of fitness in, where, in which they're not selling any hardware whatsoever. And um, they're basically licensing out their content to to any hardware manufacturer who wants to put it onto their onto their equipment. But yeah, I mean, look, thesis has changed. It has to have changed. It couldn't possibly stay the same. But, you know, long term, if, if McCarthy gets to to fix this, fix these inventory issues, bring the costs down, potentially turn it into a much more asset light business, you know, there's still definitely a business there. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully he gets to stick around long enough. He doesn't get the old Premier League manager cut. Be, be turning around the ship like the fellas on the Suez Canal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's move on then. And, and I'm almost reluctant to move on because we had managed to go so many episodes without talking about this. But of course, we have to come back to, to Twitter and Elon Musk. The problems really have been mounting up for Twitter recently. Its former head, I suppose, most recent or most importantly, its former head of security for the company, Peter Zatko, came out as a whistleblower last week with a disclosure that alleges seriously serious security and privacy vulnerabilities on the platform, as well as regulators being misled by the company about the amount of spam accounts on the platform. Of course, nobody was happier to hear this, I imagine, than Elon Musk, with the Tesla CEO now trying once again to use this information to push for a delay in the lawsuit that Twitter's brought against him to try and force his hand into buying the company. Lots to pull apart here, Mike, as usual. Uh, let's chat out about the whistleblower stuff first, though. How bad are these allegations? Yeah, I mean, at first glance, pretty bad. Um, I think I want to preface all of this by first saying that none of these claims have been substantiated yet. Yeah. Twitter denies them. Zacco, or he's better known as Mudge, um, was I love, fired. I would love to hear the story behind that. <laughs> yeah, well, he was like one of the world's famous hackers. Um, like, you know, they go they go by AKAs, I think. <laughs> uh, he was fired for poor performance. So, you know, there might be the, the jilted ex-worker there. And then the timing is certainly a little convenient as well. So... That's the kind of preface. And then within the report, so he filed official uh, whistleblower report and the threats in it range from threats to personal information to threats to national security and threats to democracy itself. Okay. So (laughs) it's a fairly, fairly wide net, but uh, I'll try to give you a quick rundown. So former head of security is called Peter Zacco, better known as Mudge. He was a pretty famous ethical hacker. Um, So before... Jack Dorsey gave him the job as Twitter's head of security. He worked for Google, he worked for Stripe, and he even worked for the Department of Defense. Um, he was hired. Do you remember two years ago, there was this big hack of all these influential Twitter accounts, Joe Biden, Obama, ironically, yeah. Elon Musk as well. There was like a kind of crypto scam thing. Yeah, I remember I remember yeah. Elon Musk and the crypto one because it was quite hard to tell if he was hacked or not. Yeah, yeah exactly. So Jack Dorsey hired him basically the day after that happened. And I remember at the time, the implications of this hack were like, it was almost a relief after because you're thinking, Jesus, imagine what could have happened here. Like, whoever hacked in had access to some of the most important people in the world's Twitter accounts, the damage they could have done. So that kind of exposed Twitter's vulnerabilities. And it's where a lot of Mudge's allegations actually fall is this kind of lax environment and lack of adequate security around access to Twitter's central controls. So there was something crazy stat about almost 50% of developers had access to this uh, production environment in which mm. they could ha- basically see too much. They had central controls, they had access to sensitive information, and it was just a huge security vulnerability that executives really didn't go far enough in kind of fixing. Um, he alleges that top execs try to cover these up. They uh, reduced his access to the board. They kind of fudge numbers with government regulators as well. And they also struggle. They, they failed to delete personal data after users cancel their accounts. So there's more as well. He accuses CEO uh, Prague Agrawal of suggesting to comply with P- Putin's censorship of the platform in Russia. Um, he alleges that the government had government, the company had government employees on its payroll under pressure from the Indian government. And as well, it came out later that there was a Saudi Saudi Arabian spy working for Twitter too. If you think of in terms of repressive governments, dissidents, uh, 
journalists, yeah. access to their DMs, access to their IP information. That gets very hairy very quickly. Yeah. And lastly, then he gets into, what? Well, not lastly, there is a tome of information. If you want to go find it yourself, I wouldn't recommend it. It gets a bit deep, I suppose. But um, he goes into the bot issue as well, which is central to Musk's argument for backing out, or it was central to Musk's argument for backing out of the acquisition. Now he's got all this new ammo to work with. Um, so he says that Twitter, he basically says Twitter doesn't know how many bots are on the platform um, and the process that it uses to estimate this sub 5% of the monthly daily monetizable daily active users isn't extensive by any means. He kind of says Twitter's, Twitter execs don't want to know how many bots are on the platform because it might fairly damage the valuation of it. Um, he doesn't really dispute the 5% figure, but... Yeah, no, all in all, it's not, yeah. not great. There, you, but uh, yeah, I have to reiterate that these are allegations yeah. that have been refuted by Twitter too before you just take them as fact. But yeah, like you mentioned Elon Musk there, surely he's, you know, he's licking his lips at this, this trove of information coming out. Um, he's obviously trying to get, well, trying number one, not, not to have to buy Twitter, but also trying to push this trial out to next year. Can you talk to me quickly? Why, why is Musk so interested in pushing the trial out number one? And of course, it might seem obvious, but this will, this whistleblower will obviously have massive implications on the, the trial when it does happen. Yeah, well, the postponement, um, there was kind of the conspiracy behind his funding was limited. So it could potentially fall through if this continues for too long and there's his easy out. I'm sorry. My offer was based on me having this particular funding, which I now no longer have. Sorry, I can't go through with the deal. Here's my legal way of getting out of it. See you, losers. But um, (laughs) in terms of the actual, like, so the October trial now was based on, like, Musk sent a letter to Twitter saying, I'm not buying you because you have too many bots. Like, yeah. And and then that was on the 8th of July. On August 29th, he wrote them a separate letter basically saying, I'm backing out of the deal because you knew all these claims from Mudge were true before entering into the deal. So it's kind of like, this is now his contingency plan. And I have a feeling that it's going to be his main plan because yeah. the bot argument doesn't really have a leg to stand on. It was nowhere... It, it wasn't a provision in his merger agreement. And if it turns out that there are more than this 5% number, it still isn't grounds for him to back out. So yeah. unless it turns out that there was kind of like a system-wide cover-up about the figures, which resulted in fraud, that's his only way of getting out that way. But that's where you kind of see this new you know, gift to Elon Musk and the timing of it become very fortuitous. And yeah. I know Zacco claims that he filed the report before he knew of any Musk involvement, but it just all seems a bit, it just all seems a bit convenient. And like, I think now knowing that there's talk over the acquisition happening, this was the time Zacco knew that could inflict the most potential damage on Twitter. If this news came out, this used to be coming out every six months about Facebook. Do you know what I mean? This isn't like, (laughs) this isn't that extraordinary of, in context. Kind of, in context, yes. But within the acquisi- acquisition trial happening and everything else, it's kind of able to inflict maximum pain right now. So yeah, I'm not sure, so, like, as in, if Zach's claims are true, you know, how can you kind of make Musk go through with this acquisition then? Uh, yeah. So I think it does weaken his, I, I just strengthen his case. Um, 
Well, it goes back yeah. to that point. Like, how, how can you make Musk go through with it? And, and I suppose it goes back to the point which concerns us most, which is this is just more terrible news for Twitter shareholders. Yeah, absolutely. And like, none of it looks good either. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, is in it does look very poor management and what seems like no real controls over the business. And, you know, the, there's a FTC lawsuit that it had to abide by that, that Zacco is saying it hadn't for 10 years, basically. And like, you can think of the fines that that would come through and even mm. personal fines on who was in control. So, uh, CEO now, Agrawal, he was the CTO at the time. Like, is in where, where, where does the kind of the responsibility stop for all this oversight? Because yeah. it's true. Like, you have this responsibility to uphold kind of the security of a platform that is so important to current affairs and news and politics and everything else and maybe they're falling short yeah what do you think rory will we be coming back to the podcast it's sometime in the future saying jesus elon musk had a point <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a plague on both their houses <laughs> just, no one's no one's coming away from this unscathed it's a it's a pretty dirty knife fight, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's move on on that cheery note. Uh, and before we do move on, don't forget that if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end. Rory and Mike are going to pitch me two companies. I'm going to pick one of them and we're going to have a full discussion on the opportunities and maybe the threats with that company as an investment and see kind of where it sits in terms of being on our analyst shortlist. If you want to listen to that, there's a link in the notes for today's show. So just tap that, enjoy more Stock Club. I also want to flag that if you're a Revolut user in Ireland or the UK, you might have noticed that my wall street is now in the reward section of the revolut app you can get 30 percent cash back off of my wall street subscription when you subscribe through revolut just search in the reward section for your, for your revolut uh for my wall street sorry and click on it on it the dedicated link to access that i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's move on to mailbag, guys. So we're doing a little something different uh, in mailbag this week. As members of my Wall Street community will know, our analyst team published three pitches for our stock of the month on Wednesday. Our team will spend the next week deliberating over each of those pitches. And then next Wednesday... It's Wednesday, the 7th of September. Our stock of the month will be unveiled. Usually it's only premium members of my Wall Street that get to see these picks. However, Mike, you've agreed to come on and give us a sneak peek of your stock of the month pitch on the podcast today. Outline some of the reasons why you like it and why it's a good investment opportunity right now. So, Mike, what company have you pitched for, for the stock of the month? Yeah, I pitched uh, CrowdStrike. It's a cybersecurity company, specializes in endpoint protection, threat intelligence, and cyber attack response. And it is also a very wordy description, apparently. Um, (laughs) 
There are two main reasons behind the kind of current, I suppose, investment thesis for CrowdStrike. The first is that cybersecurity as an industry has established itself as kind of this mission critical tool now for businesses across the globe. Whereas cough, cough, so, Twitter, <laughs> cough, cough, Twitter. When we're when we're when we're looking at kind of spending habits and companies reducing their spending, you'll see certain types of businesses affected much more than others, and CrowdStrike especially has has had this relative strength, I suppose you call it, mm. compared to the rest of tech stocks this year. And this is because of that. Um, so I don't see a pullback in spending habits uh, in the face of, I don't see this pullback happening in terms of like its customer spending habits, especially when we're looking at more economic uncertainty coming forward. Um, and the second is just the company itself. It's, it's product suites kind of risen head and shoulders above competitors. And like when you're dealing with a complex industry like this, it's, best to defer to experts so you have the textile where it's like Forrester Wave and Gartner both team CrowdStrike's offering is best in class um even a quote from CEO George Kurtz on the competitive environment he said win rates are consistently strong and the competitive competitive environment is favorable we see no competitor with a comparable offering um when it comes to cybersecurity you're not going to go for the cheaper option. So yeah. I think that really distinguishes CrowdStrike in an industry that has always already has favorable macro headwinds. Um and then last night, well Wednesday, Tuesday night, we're recording Wednesday, it reported earnings and it just basically confirms all these points. It's continuing to grow at breakneck speed and it has posted its best retention figures yet as a public company. So all in all, I think it's uh looking pretty good even if it is a pretty lofty valuation at the minute. Yeah, sounds interesting. So remember this pitch along with two others, one from Rory, one from Marie, have been posted on my Wall Street app already. You can go in and check them out there. And next Wednesday, we're going to pick one of those for our September stock of the month. Rory, I won't ask you what your pitch is, but is it better than Mike's? It's in the same ballpark as Mike's. Okay. Put it that way. They're kind of buddies. Sounds good. So make sure to check that out. If you haven't had enough pitches, we're moving on to our elevator pitch now today. So you're getting uh, you're getting plenty of com- companies thrown at you. Um, so let's finish out with the elevator pitch as usual. Remember, one of these pitches I'm going to choose and we're going to have a larger discussion on it then. Uh, Mike, I still haven't recovered from your pitch for phase, uh, phase plan, <laughs> phase holdings last week. It was they uh, just, they just um, I just saw there they um, have renewed their contract with McDonald's. It's no way. Today. Yeah. The stock was down on Monday though because one of their uh, one of the Phase Clan members lost a YouTube boxing match. So there you go. I mean, Give this and is, take. These are the, these uh, are the highs and lows of business, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Imagine on its like annual report and it has to put in risk factors <laughs> and it's like Phase Rory. Phase Rory is uh, on a losing streak. In a boxing I would love room. to see Buffett and Munger discuss this company. <laughs> ah. Yeah. That would be quality. Which um, one lost the YouTube match for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rory, I'll come to you first. Do you want to pitch me? Give me a quick pitch for the company you're looking at at the moment. Yeah, so I I started looking at this company not particularly because I don't follow the meme st- stock craze. So I actually didn't know it had been memeified over the last week or two. Um, it's a business called Weber, which I'm sure many people uh, are familiar with, especially barbecue enthusiasts. Um, they're the market leader in outdoor grilling appliances. They went public in August last year. Uh, it's a company that was founded over 70 years ago. Um, what drew me to the business originally that is, is that if you basically, if you, if you search on the internet for the best barbecue, 
um, you're, you're basically going to find hundreds of sites that do these kind of best of lists. And there's kind of multiple different categories of barbecues kind of depending on what you want, whether so it's kind of gas or charcoal or, or pellet. Um, but basically pretty much all across the board from, from all the sites I looked at anyway. Um, and admittedly, I didn't look at them all, but I, li- I looked at quite a few. Um, they pretty much are the number one in every category. Okay. Uh, there's only one category, I think the pellet grills where Traeger seemed to have the edge, which seemed to get the number one spot. So, I mean, I always like to find a business like that. Um, one that basically everyone agrees on is kind of the best in class. Uh, and you know, it's a business that's been around a long time. It's built a reputation and a brand awareness over decades. The stock is significantly down from its IPO price. So I kind of was looking at it to see if there was any value to be found. Um, yeah. The fact yeah. that you want mean stocks kind of annoyed me because it's kind of throwing everything into into the land of my Wall Street bets. But mm. I'm not really interested in that element of it. I was kind of just looking at the business but itself. They don't they don't really leave meme status, do they? Like the true yeah. meme stocks. It seems they kind of follows them around for ages. Once you're memes, you can't go back. Yeah. Has any has any meme stock been unmemed? Huh? Um, um iRobot got memed for like a week. Um and then it got bought. Clover Clover yeah. Clo- Clover Health got memed. Yeah, there was a couple of them that kind of yeah, like, yeah, I don't know, yeah. where people just, people were investors just trying to make the meme stocks and no one bought. Like, <laughs> I, I know. It's not, that's not mad enough. Come on. Something <laughs> crazier. The fundamentals are too <laughs> solid. Okay. Well, let's go on to our next pitch then. Thanks for that, Rory. Mike, what company are you pitching us? Uh, the company I am pitching. So I learned my lesson from last week uh, and I've gone ultra boring instead. <laughs> uh, so I was reading up about REITs and apparently they do quite well during periods of high inflation. So you see property values go up and you get some consistent income. So um, so that's where I went. Uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, a REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And they're companies that own and lease out real estate. So what differentiates them from normal companies is that in exchange for paying out at least 90% of net income to shareholders, they get a bunch of tax breaks and stuff. So basically all of their profits go towards dividends. Um, This led me to Realty Income, which owns properties across the US, UK, and Spain. Huge business. has got like 11,000 properties and owns about 200 million square feet of property. Wow. Has a market cap over 40 billion. And what makes it it kind of a unique investment in this industry, I suppose, is that it pays out a monthly dividend instead of a quarterly one. So... It even actually owns the cre- the trademark for the monthly dividend company. Um, and this is basically where the investment thesis lies is just around the dividend. So it actually has grown its dividend four po- at a 4.4% CAGR since 1994. And it's seen 99 consecutive quarterly increases. Wow. So that's real income. Mike, I think you've gamed the system because <laughs> I don't really want to hear more about a reef. I don't, I don't think there's anything more to hear. I just yeah. list out like sites around the US. <laughs> um, so yeah, sounds uh, sounds boring. So Rory, let's go with your one. Uh, That's a good trick, Mike. I must remember. <laughs> let's yeah. hear more about Weber. So guys, if you're not listening to us in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you do want to find out more about Weber and what we think of it as a potential investment, however, jump on over to the My Wall Street app where you can listen into the rest of our conversation on the company for free. All you have to do is create a free My Wall Street account. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle on future episodes of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch. You can find us in all the usual places. That's on Twitter. That's at my Wall Street HQ. On TikTok, that's at my Wall Street. Or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P O D at mywallst.com. If you're enjoying Stock Club, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to Stock Club on. Thanks so much for joining us today. And from the three of us here, we'll talk to you next week.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 